Part Four, Chapter Twelve of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter Twelve. Hardly conscious of her movements, Clodagh left the card room and passed down the corridor. Her only tangible sensations were anger and self-contempt. The thought that Serracald, who had seemed less than nothing in the scheme of her life, Serracald, with whom she had laughed and jested and flirted because he was a boy and of no account, should have treated her lightly, should have presumed to kiss her, to seize her violently in his arms, was something shameful and intolerable. The simplicity of her upbringing, the uncontaminated childhood that her country had given her, rose to confront her in this newest crisis vain frivolous foolish she might be but beneath the vanity the frivolity the folly she was and always had been good in the primitive fundamental sense of the word she hurried down the corridor and down the staircase that she had ascended so short a time before but reaching the ground floor she did not turn towards the ballroom from which the sound of the violin still floated instinctively she moved in the opposite direction towards the quieter portion of the house in which stood the music-room. The door of the room was closed when she reached it, and no sound came to her from within. For a space she stood hesitatingly outside. Then the distant murmur of talk and laughter roused her to action. Her hesitancy fled before her distaste for companionship. She raised her hand and noiselessly opened the door. To enter the music-room was to enter a region of romance for, as the card-room upstairs suggested the world and the things of the world, this room seemed to embrace all the repose, all the dignity, all the peace that such places as Tufnell gather onto themselves with the passage of time. It was a long low-sealed room with wainscoted walls and a polished oak floor, and the first object that met the visitor's eye was an old harpsichord, mutely eloquent of bygone days, for, with rare good taste, Lady Diana had hidden her piano behind a tapestry screen worked many centuries ago by another lady of the house. Even on this night of festivity the place retained its peculiar quiet. Only half a dozen candles burned in the sconces that hung upon the walls, and the scent of lavender and dried rose-leaves lingered upon the air. It seemed what it was, a room in which for numberless generations women of refinement had made music read poetry, or sung songs while they wove about them the indescribable atmosphere of home. And into this room Clodagh stepped, her heart burning, her mind distressed, pained, and hurt. For an instant she paused upon the threshold, overwhelmed by the contrast between the aloofness, the grateful repose of the place, and tumult of her own thoughts. Then, yielding to the spirit of peace, she closed the door resolutely and went forward into the room. But at sound of the closing door, at sound of her dress upon the polished floor, an answering sound came from behind the tapestry screen, the noise of a chair being quietly pushed back, of someone rising to his feet. In sudden consternation she stopped. For one instant she glanced behind her, contemplating flight. The next a faint exclamation of surprise the merest audible breath escaped her, and her figure became motionless. The occupant of the room came quietly round the screen, 
and in the uncertain light of the candles she recognized Gore. The position was unusual, the moment was unusual. For the first time since the night at the Palazzo Ugaccini they were entirely alone. For the first time since the night at the Palazzo Ugaccini they looked at each other without the commentary of other eyes, without the atmosphere of conventional things. Involuntarily, inevitably, their eyes met. Clodagh looked into his, and in the contact of glances it seemed that a miracle came to pass. By power of that magnetism that indisputably exists, the magnetism that draws certain natures irrevocably together, although circumstance and time may delay their union, she saw the gleam of comprehension, of question, of acknowledgment spring from his eyes to hers. And she knew, without the need of words, that he stood within the circle of her power, that whether with or against his will, his personality claimed response from hers. She did not move, for it seemed to her in that instant of understanding that her life and his were mysteriously suspended. Her heart beat extraordinarily fast, yet her mental vision was curiously clear. By the light of her recent misgivings, by the light of her sudden confidence, she seemed to see and to read herself and him with a strange and vivid clearness. Some power, tangible yet invincibly compelling, drew them together. In the personal scheme of things there were only two persons, he and she. Beyond the walls of the music-room life swept forward as relentlessly, as rapidly as before, but inside the walls of the music-room there were only he and she. Almost unconsciously she took a step towards him. "'Do you remember that night in Venice?' she asked. "'The night you said all the things that sounded so hard, and hurt so much, and—' and were so true. She did not know why she had spoken. She did not know how she had framed her words. She only knew that, exalted by the consciousness of great good within her reach, she was moved to dare greatly. It was the moment of her life, the moment when all social barriers of prejudice and of etiquette fell away before a tremendous self-knowledge. She realized in that space of time that her thoughts of gore, her attraction towards him, her reluctant admiration had been insensibly leading up to this instant of action, that on the evening when they stood together on the terrace of the hotel at Venice and watched the night steal in from the lagoon it had been irrevocably written in the book of fate that they should one day look into each other's hearts, for happiness, or sorrow. "'Do you remember that night in Venice?' she said again, almost below her breath and in the pause that followed the whispered words the most wonderful, the most wholly perfect incident of her life occurred. The voice that had power to chill or stir her spoke her name. The hands she had believed closed to her forever were held out towards her. Gore came slowly forward across the shadowed room. "'I do remember,' he said. "'I have never forgotten. I never shall forget.'" End of chapter 12 Chapter Thirteen. Nearly three weeks had passed since the night of Lady Diana Tufnell's dance, and Clodagh was once more occupying her London flat. The season was long since dead. The fashionable world had betaken itself to its customary haunts. London had, in the eyes of society, become intolerable. 
and yet it seemed to her as she woke each morning and looked across the park lying under a haze of heat that she had never known the great city until now that she had never experienced the exhilaration that can lie in its crowded strenuous life until now when her own existence her own soul seemed lifted above it on the wings of happiness the hours the days the weeks that had followed the night of lady diana's dance had been a chain of golden dreams linked one to the other from the moment that gore had made his confession the face of the world had altered for her one overwhelming fact had colored the universe the fact that he loved that he needed her they had entered into no lucid explanations in the moments that had followed the confession for men and women in love have no need of such mundane things with the glorious egotism of nature they are content with the primitive consciousness that each lives and is close to the other clodagh had it is true made some faint and deprecating allusion to the past to gore's first disapproval and subsequent avoidance of her and he had paused in his flow of talk and looked at her with sudden seriousness i have never disapproved of you he had said i have never felt it was my place to disapprove but you have avoided me never intentionally i have watched you i have studied you since we have been here together and what have you seen clodagh had remembered the card-room and seracald the rose-garden and deerhurst with a quick faint sense of fear but gore had taken her hand and with quiet courtesy had raised it to his lips i have seen or believe i have seen that though you may like these people may be amused by them may even court them not one of them is more to you now than they were in venice that is what i believe am i right and clodagh in sudden relief in sudden gratitude for his faith had caught his hand passionately between her own and looked up confidently into his face you are right she had cried oh you are right they are nothing to me nothing nothing and gore moved by her vehemence had leant forward and looked deeply into the eyes that challenged his not one of them is anything to you in any way not one of them is anything to me in any way that had been the only moment of personal doubt or question that had obtruded itself upon the first hours of mutual comprehension until more than half the program had been danced through and the older guests had begun to depart they had walked together up and down the solitary paths of the old garden upon which the music-room opened a garden where thyme and lavender and a hundred other sweet-smelling plants bordered the prim flower-beds and recalled by their sense the days when the harpsichord had tinkled out across the silence of the night as they paced slowly to and fro they had made many confessions sweet in the confessing of thoughts and desires and doubts felt by each when each had believed the other out of reach and quietly hesitatingly eagerly they had touched upon the future upon the days when clodagh's mourning should be over and they could permit the world to share their secret upon the days still later when their lives should no longer be separate things but one perfect whole gore was an unusual and a very delightful lover the slight suggestion of reticence that marked him in ordinary life clung to him even in these intimate moments he gave the impression that behind his extreme quiet his almost gentle deference of manner 
lay reserves of feeling, of dignity, of strength that he himself had, perhaps, never fathomed. And for this very reserve, this courtliness, this indescribable fineness of bearing, Clodagh felt her own nature leap forth in renewed admiration. At last, at one o'clock, they had parted, he to smoke and pace the garden paths until the early summer dawn broke over the woods, she to wait by the open window of Nance's bedroom with her face buried in her hands, her whole being alive and tingling with the tumult, the excitement of the joy that had come to her. At six o'clock next morning, before any member of the house-party was awake, Gore had made his way to the stables, and a few minutes later had emerged leading two saddled horses. In the drive he had been joined by Clodagh, dressed in her riding habit and fresh and buoyant as on the first morning when she had ridden alone through the great gates and had dreamed of his coming to Tufnell. No companionship can be more delightful than that of two people wholly occupied with each other who ride together on a summer morning. To Clodagh the frank happiness of that stolen ride, the intoxicating sense of reality conveyed by Gore's glance as she met it in the searching sunlight, had been things that possessed no parallel. Her natural spontaneous capacity for joy had awakened within her like a flood of light. The misgivings, the dark hours, the feverish artificiality of the past months had been dispersed as if by magic. She had become as a child who, by the fervor of its own delight, sheds delight upon all around. And so it had been with the days that had elapsed before their departure from Buckinghamshire. They had met as often as chance would permit. But, with the exception of the first golden ride, they had arranged no more secret meetings. And to Clodagh the half-furtive, ever-expectant existence had been fraught with new pleasure. To talk and laugh with others, to watch Gore do likewise, and all the while to know that, unseen by any eyes, unsuspected by those around them, their lives were linked together, their thoughts belonged to each other, was a source of intense excitement, of unending joy. To Nance alone did she confide her secret, and here lay another source of happiness. For every night when the house-party had retired, when Simonetta had been dismissed and the house given over to the great sheltering stillness of the country, the sisters had exchanged such confidences as all women love talking of their hopes, their fears, their pasts, their futures, in the half-reluctant, half-eager confessions that the dark suggests. Then at last these days of mystery and possibility had come to an end. Gore had received a letter from his mother asking him to join her in Scotland, and almost at the same hour had come a cablegram from Pierce Escoit saying that he, with his mother and sister, had sailed for England a fortnight earlier than they had at first intended. So bidding good-bye to the Tufnells, to her fellow guests, and to Gore, Clodagh had returned to London, and now, a fortnight later, she and Nance were driving homeward through the park in the warmth of an early afternoon. The morning had been devoted to the preparation of Nance's trousseau, a matter which in these days claimed absorbed attention, and later the sisters had lunched together at one of the restaurants. The day, or at least the earlier portion of it, had been a complete success. But now, as Clodagh's motor-car sped along under the canopy of trees, already whitened with summer dust, a cloud seemed to have fallen upon the sisters' gaiety. 
Clodagh lay back in her corner, looking straight in front of her. Nance sat stiffly upright, her face flushed, her head held at an aggressive angle. At last, unable to maintain the silence longer, she turned and looked at her sister. "'It, it seems to me so stupid,' she said. Clodagh took up a parasol that lay beside her and opened it with a little jerk. "'Was it my fault that he lunched at Prince's? Was it my fault that he sat at the table next to ours? You know perfectly well that I don't care where he lunches or whether he ever lunches.' Nance maintained her rigid attitude. "'I wonder if he is of that opinion?' she said dryly. Clodagh flushed suddenly. "'It is you who are being stupid. Lord Deerhurst is one of my best friends. It's impossible to treat him rudely when we chance to meet.' Nance gave a little angry laugh. "'When you chance to meet,' she repeated with immense scorn. Then she turned afresh and looked at her sister. "'Do you think engaged people ought to have best friends? I wonder what Pierce would say if I were to get flowers and books and things every day.' Clodagh shut her parasol sharply. "'How can you, Nance? Books and flowers and things every day? Four times Lord Deerhurst has sent me flowers since we came back to town. And how many times has he written to you? And how many times has he called? And why did he come back to town from Tufnell instead of going to France with Mr. Serracall?' Clodagh looked away across the park. "'He had business in town business was it business that brought him to the flat at nine o'clock the second day after we arrived and that made you ride with him oh clough i wonder when you think of walter that you're you're not ashamed she brought the last word forth with a little gasp for a moment clodagh's face was suffused with red i don't need anybody to tell me how i should care for walter she said after a moment's pause at the low hurt tone Nance's antagonistic attitude suddenly deserted her. The expression of her face changed, her figure unbent. Clo, Clo, I was a wretch, I was a wretch. Forgive me, it's only that knowing Walter is coming back tomorrow, knowing that he hates Lord Deerhurst, and seeing you allow him to go everywhere that you go. Oh, Clo, I can't properly explain, but sometimes I have felt afraid. Walter is so, so honorable himself. Chloe put out her hand and laid it for a moment upon her sister's. "'When one loves like I do, Nance,' she said, "'one simply doesn't see anybody but the person that one cares for. Other people don't count. Other people don't exist.' Nance looked down at the hand still resting upon her own. "'Perhaps not,' she said wisely, "'but the point is that the person one cares for may not be quite so blind.' Clodagh withdrew her hand. You mean that Walter might imagine? You mean that Walter might be jealous of Lord Deerhurst? I do mean that. With a sudden gesture of amusement, Clodagh threw up her head and laughed. Then, almost as suddenly, her face became grave. Nance, she said in a new voice. Very sharply, Nance turned. Yes. But Clodagh's mood had veered once more. Nothing, darling, she said. Nothing. Here we are at home. Aren't you longing for a nice cool room and a cup of tea? End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 The fragmentary quarrel between the sisters was very suggestive. Nance's anger and Clodagh's irritable repudiation of her advice had each been fraught with its own significance. For much as the former might busy herself in the happiness of her own engagement and the preparations for her marriage, 
she could not blind herself to the fact that Clodagh was acting, if not with genuine folly, at least with something that might readily be mistaken for it, and much as the latter might resent a criticism of her action, she could not mentally deny that possibly the criticism was justified. Yet when the matter came to be sifted, it was hard to say exactly the point to which exception could reasonably be taken. Undoubtedly Deerhurst did obtrude himself with curious, with almost intimate frequency into the plans of each day, but then the intrusion was so natural, so simple, so subtle, if one might use so extreme a word. If London is large in one sense, it is socially as small as any other capital, and the man who wishes to seek the society of a member of his own set finds his way rendered very easy, and in all matters of tact and subtlety Deerhurst was an adept. If in Nance's eyes his comings and goings were things to cavil at, he knew exactly how to arrange them for Clodagh's consideration, so that the gift of a bunch of flowers, the offer of seats at a theatre, the loan of a horse, or the retailing of an amusing bit of gossip seemed the merest courtesies from one friend to another. For in one fact lay his advantage, the fact of a really great favour, secretly given and secretly accepted, in comparison with which all trivial civilities became as nothing. Not that he ever pressed this advantage home. He was far too wise to allude to it by look or word but the very passivity of his attitude served to fix the consciousness of his generosity deeper in Clodagh's mind. Not that the knowledge of it galled her. She was too exultantly happy in her own life to be hampered by any debt. But the knowledge of its existence was there, unconsciously bearing upon her ideas and her actions. On the morning following her return from Tufnell, a faint thrill of surprise and uneasiness had touched her when her eyes had fallen upon a big square envelope bearing a black coronet that lay amongst her letters on the breakfast-table, and another remembrance of Venice had caused her fingers to tremble slightly as she tore the letter open. But at the first line her face had cleared. Her confidence in life and in herself had flowed back in fool's hide. There was not a word in the letter that Gore himself might not have read. So great had been her relief that a new wave of kindly feeling for Deerhurst had awakened in her mind, and when, on the following morning, he had joined her in her early ride, she had received him with friendly warmth. And from that things had drifted until Deerhurst's presence, Deerhurst's discreet, deferential, amusing personality, had become a factor in the day's routine. The escorts had arrived from America, and, with their advent, she had been compelled to see less of Nance. The majority of her friends had already left town, so that even had she desired the old existence, amusements and occupations were less easy to find than they had been a month ago. There was, of course, her daily letter from Gore, the most precious thing in her existence, and there was also her daily letter to him. But even a woman in love cannot read and write or even dream all day and in the intervals of idleness there invariably seemed to be Deerhurst. But now at last the day had arrived upon which Gore was to return to London. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. The hot summer air was beating upon the green and white sunblinds of the flat, and Nance was standing at a table in the window arranging a bowl of heliotrope 
when Clodagh opened the door of the drawing-room. She was dressed in her riding-habit, her riding-crop was under one arm, and as she came forward into the room she was drawing off a pair of chamois gloves. "'He hasn't come,' she asked quickly. "'Oh, I'm so glad. I was terrified that that last gallop might have made me late. How lovely life is!' She came quickly across the room, and linking her arm in Nance's, buried her face in the heliotrope. "'How lovely life is, and summer, and flowers! Do you know, the sun to-day made me long for Orristown. Think of it all, Nance, Burke and Hannah, and Polly, and the dogs. Oh, we must all go there together, you and I, and Pierce, and Walter!' She paused suddenly and looked at her sister. "'Nance, you're cross!' Nance refused to look up. "'Nance, you're cross!' Her voice was less sure, less confident. Nance caught the tone of hesitancy and turned quickly round. "'I wish Walter had driven through the park ten minutes ago,' she said. "'I do, I really, really do.' Clodagh's face flamed, and she drew away from her sister. "'And I wish,' she began hotly, then she paused. The door of the drawing-room was thrown open, and Gore was announced. For one instant Clodagh stood hesitating with a new and charming diffidence. The next all thoughts of self were blotted out by the consciousness of his presence, his bright strong presence typified by his frank eyes, his clear healthy skin, his close-cropped fair hair. With a little exclamation of greeting she hurried towards him. In quick warm response he took both her hands. "'Well,' he said, "'well, it's good to see you. How splendid you look! And Nance, too!' He turned to the window with quiet cordiality. Can Nance find time to shake hands with the mere Englishman? Nance laid down the bunch of heliotrope she was still holding, and at the same moment Clodagh looked round impulsively. Nance and I were quarrelling, she said. Quarrelling? What on earth about? Gore looked amusedly from one to the other. Oh, about— But Nance interrupted by stepping quickly forward. About nothing, she said hastily. How are you, Walter? I'm so glad to see you but I must wash my hands before I even try to talk. Heliotrope is much stickier than you'd think. She looked down at her fingers, then laughed and moved across the room. But as Gore hurried forward to open the door for her, she glanced up into his face with an almost serious look. "'I'm so glad you have come back,' she whispered. "'Make up to her for the time you've been away.' Gore's feelings were very pleasant, very protective as he closed the door and turned back into the room he was too essentially an Englishman to be very demonstrative, but the leaven of sentiment that so often lies in the English character had always held a place in his nature. In confessing his love to Clodagh, in acknowledging that love to himself, he had indisputably swept aside some difficulties, difficulties born of inherent prejudice, of a certain stiff-necked distrust of what he had begun by criticizing but they had been thrust aside. He had acknowledged himself stirred to the depths of nature by something brilliant and vivid in her personality. He had made his choice. His whole expression, his whole bearing, was attractive as he came towards her. He seemed to carry about him a breath of the country, the clean open spaces of the country, and her heart gave a throb of pride and satisfaction, of complete ungrudging admiration as he took her hands again and drew her to him. "'Well,' he said fondly, "'well, have you really missed me as much as your letter said?' 
For a moment she remained silent, drinking in the joy of his presence. "'Won't you tell me?' "'In a moment, in one moment. Oh, Walter, the heavenly rest of knowing that you care.' Then, suddenly shaking off her seriousness, she drew away from him, looking up into his face with eyes that shone strangely. "'I'm not crying, Walter,' she exclaimed. "'I'm only frantically happy.' She gave a little gasp, followed by a little laugh. And Gore, carried away by her charm, by the unconscious flattery of her words, caught her suddenly in his arms, and bending his face to hers, kissed her passionately. At last they drew apart, laughing, and Clodagh moved across the room to the open window and sat down upon the low sill. A second or two later he followed her. "'Well, and so the fiance is perfection?' he said smilingly. "'Little Nance looks very happy.' He seated himself on the edge of the table, strewn with the debris of the heliotrope. Clodagh glanced up, pleased and interested. "'Yes, Pierce is charming,' she said eagerly, "'and so are his mother and sister. I told you, didn't I?' "'Yes.' "'We dined with them at the Carlton last night, and they're coming here to tea this afternoon. I know you'll love them. Mrs. Escoit has the most fascinating—' But Gore made a rueful face. "'Today,' he said, "'oh, you might have given me the first day.' Clodagh laughed happily. "'How greedy of you! This is to be a family party.' Gore smiled. "'And Nance was decorating the room for the sacrifice?' He idly gathered the stalks and leaves of the heliotrope into a little pile. The action was purely mechanical, purely inadvertent. But as he drew the broken stems together, a small object hitherto hidden under the scattered leaves was suddenly brought to light. It was very trivial, very uninteresting, merely a man's visiting card. Without consideration he picked it up and looked at it. Then, with an extremely quiet gesture, he laid it down again. It bore the name of the Earl of Deerhurst, and across it Clodagh's name and address had been scribbled in pencil. "'So you owe the decorations to Deerhurst?' he said in a low voice. There was a short silence. Then suddenly he rose and stepped to Clodagh's side. "'Dear, forgive me,' he said. At the unexpected words Clodagh's heart swelled. With a sudden impulse she caught the hand he had laid upon her shoulder and pressed it against her face. "'No, Walter,' she said. "'Say all that was in your mind. Be angry if you like.' For answer, Gore seated himself beside her on the window-sill. "'I don't think I should ever be angry with you,' he said gently. "'Anger seems to belong to lesser things than love. I should either believe in you or disbelieve in you.' He said the somewhat curious words gravely. Clodagh turned to him swiftly. "'Walter, there was no doubt of me in your mind, then?' He met her searching eyes quietly. "'Not one doubt. Do you think I have forgotten that night at Tufnell? He spoke almost gently, but at his words the remembrance of the night at Tufnell rushed back upon Clodagh with an almost exaggerated vividness. On that night love had shone upon her, love with its coveted accompaniments of trust and protection. She remembered the dimly lit music-room, the dark garden with its old-fashioned scents. She remembered Gore's quiet, distinct question. Not one of these people is anything to you, in any way. She remembered this, and she remembered also the infinitesimal pause that had divided his question from her answer when the images of Lady Frances Hope, of Sarah called, 
of Deerhurst had flitted across her imagination. Then, last of all, she recalled her own answer. "'Not one of them is anything to me, in any way.' The moment that had brought forth that answer had been crucial, had been psychologically intensely interesting. It had been the triumph of love, the triumph of the egotism that is, and ever must be, a component part of love. And now, as she reviewed the incident in the colder light of day, as she turned involuntarily and looked at Gore, she was suddenly mastered by the certain knowledge that, were the circumstance to be repeated, her action would be the same. With a swift movement she held out her hand. Walter, she said impulsively, you are the only person in the world. No one else exists. It was an hour later, and the outward aspect of Clodagh's drawing-room had been changed. The sun-blinds had been drawn up, and a full flood of light allowed to pour in across the table in the window. The debris of leaves and stalks upon the table, and with them Deerhurst's card, had been removed to give place to a tea-tray, while through the room itself rang the gay talk and laughter of people who have enjoyed a genuinely pleasant meal. The tea had been disposed of some little time ago, but Nance still lingered beside the tea-table, and at her side stood Gore, and a young man of five-and-twenty with a tall, slight figure, a pale face, and intensely shrewd and penetrating eyes. Clodagh, still wearing her riding habit, sat in the centre of the room in radiantly high spirits, talking animatedly to a distinguished-looking woman with beautiful white hair and to a slim, graceful girl of about Nance's age who sat on either side of her. "'Isn't it unkind of Mrs. Escoit, Pierce?' she said, suddenly turning towards the tea-table. "'She says she must go.' Escoit laughed, and when he laughed a very agreeable gleam of humour showed in his shrewd eyes but it takes my mother ten minutes to go from anywhere he said ask nance if it doesn't clodagh laughed gaily good then i can ask ten more questions about boston mrs escoit please tell me but she paused before her sentence was finished for the handle of the door had turned and looking up quickly she saw the tall figure of deerhurst had any member of the party looked at her in that moment he or she would have seen a wave of color sweep across her face, then die out, leaving her almost white. But beyond this she betrayed no emotion, and a moment later, when Deerhurst came towards her across the room, with his habitual slow, silent step, she raised her head, smiling a conventional welcome, and held out her hand. He took it silently and with a slightly ostentatious impressiveness. A thousand apologies if I intrude on a social gathering, he murmured. But on returning home I chanced upon the book we were discussing to-day, and remembering how interested you were. With a very quiet movement he laid a small and costly little book of verses on the arm of Clodagh's chair, and turned with his usual dignity to where Nance was standing. How do you do, Miss Ashland? Is it too late to beg for a cup of tea? Nance held out her hand. I'm afraid twill be rather cold, she said a little ungraciously, but if you don't mind that, will you please ring the bell? We shall want another cup. Escoit glanced at her, a humorous look hovering about his thin lips, and at the same instant Gore was conscious of a sudden wave of brotherly affection. But Deerhurst showed no embarrassment. He turned to the fireplace, pressed the bell, then looked round again upon the little group. "'Hello, Gore,' he said carelessly. 
I thought you were killing salmon at the home of the ancestors. How do you do, Mr. Escoit? He nodded to the young American, then moved away again to where Clodagh sat. What a dreadful afternoon, he said. Why haven't you changed into something lighter? He glanced at her riding habit. She blushed and looked up hastily. We have just been saying what a glorious afternoon, but I don't think you have met Mrs. and Miss Escoit. Let me introduce you. Lord Deerhurst, Mrs. Escoit. Both ladies bowed, and Mrs. Escoit broke at once into an unaffected flow of talk, to which Deerhurst listened with polite interest, smiling now and then, and occasionally raising his eyeglass. At last, as she paused, he looked at her in faint curiosity. "'And do you really find an interest in England?' he asked. She gave a bright, cordial laugh, a laugh that seemed to testify to the perennial youth of her countrywomen. "'This is the twenty-first visit I've paid to England,' she said and I love it more every time. When my son turns me out of my home in Boston, I shall buy one of your country places as a dower house. Again she laughed, casting an affectionate glance towards Nance and Escoit. But, Clodagh, we really must fly. Good-bye, Lord Deerhurst. Delighted to have met you. She rose gracefully, shook hands with the old peer, and turning to Clodagh took both her hands and kissed her warmly. Goodbye, she said. Goodbye. It has been perfectly charming. Clodagh smiled a quick response. Indeed it has, for me. Don't forget tomorrow night. Forget? Why, I'm existing to see that play. Come, Daisy. She turned to her daughter, who had joined the group at the tea-table. Pierce, are you ready? Goodbye, Nance. Come with us to the elevator. Nance crossed the room readily, while Escoit shook hands with Clodagh. Goodbye, he said. I shall see you tomorrow night if not sooner. She pressed his hand warmly. Make it sooner, she said, and they both laughed after the manner of people who understand and like each other. The momentary departure of Nance left Clodagh, Gore, and Deerhurst the sole occupants of the room. After Escoit had closed the door there was a faint pause, and in that pause Clodagh was a prey to conflicting feelings, passionate hope that Deerhurst might see fit to go, passionate fear that Gore might leave before they could have a word in private. And while her mind swayed between hope and fear, Deerhurst drew forward a chair and seated himself beside her. "'I shall be interested to know what you think of this,' he said, leaning forward and lifting the book from the arm of her chair where she had allowed it to lie untouched. She smiled mechanically, though her senses were strained to observe Gore's attitude. It is very good of you. I am sure I shall like it. For an instant his cold glance rested curiously on her face. The next it fell again to the book. I shall expect you to like it, he said enigmatically. What is the book? Gore came quietly forward and stood looking down at them. Deerhurst raised his eyes with an expression in which amusement and a faint contempt were to be read by a close observer. The book, he said. Oh, something I am afraid that wouldn't interest you. I don't believe the writer knew anything of far countries, or even of fishing. He paused and deliberately turned half a dozen pages. He only understood one thing, but that he understood perfectly. Gore laughed. And may a Philistine ask what it was? Oh, certainly, it was love. The door opened as he said the word in his high expressive voice and to Clodagh's indescribable relief, Nance entered. In the second that she stepped across the threshold 
her bright eyes passed from one face to the other, and a rapid process of deduction took place in her mind. Walter, she said pleasantly, Pierce says there's one question he forgot to ask you about Japan. Do you mind if I ask it now? She walked to the open window. Gore followed her, and Clodagh drew a breath of deep relief. Ten minutes passed, ten interminable minutes, in which she strove to attend to Deerhurst's words while her ears were strained to follow the conversation in the window. Then at last relief came. He rose to go. I must say good-bye, he said, taking her hand. I shall await your verdict on the verses. There is one I want you specially to read. The last one. Good-bye. She smiled, scarcely hearing what he said, and a moment later he had bowed to the two in the window and passed out of the room. As the outer door closed, Nance came across to her sister. "'Do you mind if I run down to Sloane Street, Clo?' she asked. "'I never remembered those lozengers for Aunt Fan, and I can just catch the Irish mail.' Without waiting for an answer, she stooped and kissed Clodagh's forehead, and turning passed out of the room. After she left there was a silence, in which neither Clodagh nor Gore made any attempt to speak. Filled with a nervous sense of something inevitably impending, Clodagh sat very still. She dreaded to look at Gore, lest she might precipitate what he was going to say. Yet to her strained mind suspense appeared intolerable. She clasped her hands suddenly with a little catching of the breath. At the faint yet significant sound he turned from the window, and coming quietly across the room, paused behind her chair. Clodagh, he bent over her, laying his hands gently on her shoulders. Clodagh, we talked today of the night at Tufnell, of what you said that night. Yes. Clodagh's throat felt dry. And it was all true? Perfectly true? Yes, oh, Walter, yes. Gore stood upright, still keeping his hands upon her shoulders. Then I am going to ask a great favor of you. I am going to ask you to break your friendship to break your acquaintance with Deerhurst. I want you never to have him in your house after today. Dearest, believe me, I know what I am saying. As Clodagh remained silent, he bent over her again. It isn't jealousy, Clodagh. It isn't pique. It is just that I cannot bear to see the man in your presence knowing what I know of him. What do you know of him? Clodagh asked faintly. Nothing that I care to tell you. Be satisfied that I know what I ask, and that I do ask. Give him up. Cease to know him. Cease to have him here. In the intensity of his feelings his fingers pressed her shoulders. Clodagh, am I asking too much? Quite suddenly, almost hysterically, Clodagh rose, and turning to him caught his hand. No, Walter, she cried. No, no, nothing you could ask would be too great to grant. I will do what you wish. I will give him up utterly, entirely, from today. End of chapter fourteen. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.